Open our Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8 and verse uh, 27 to 31. We'll read together. It's interesting, thinking through the week and thinking about the church and thinking about ministry and, and so on. And uh, one of the verses become my friend, I guess, over the last couple of days is when Paul speaks, I believe it's in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians, about my or your strength is made perfect in my weakness. In other words, when Paul was at his weakest, then God was able to work through him in strength. And as I spent most of my week uh, choking and coughing and hacking and not able to speak very much, I realized that God is our strength in those times when things are the most difficult. And we want to serve the Lord. We want to minister to the Lord. We want to be a part of a worshiping community. And often God takes us at the point we think we're the most strong and takes it away, that he's, his strength might be shown through it. Well, let's read from verse uh, 27 to verse 30, and it says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Our gracious and loving Father, we come before you again, and we would plead with you for your help for this hour. Father, we ask you that you would speak through the scriptures and that we would have hearts to hear what you would say to us. Father, we pray for your blessing on our church. We pray, O oh God, for those that can't be here, different ones that are sick or away. Father, we pray that you would bless them and encourage them in their faith wherever they are this morning. Father, it is our desire to see Jesus to see him exalted, to see him lifted up, to see him, Father, in his glory. And Father, for those of us who claim that he is the Christ, to us he is the Son of the living God who who suffered and was buried and rose again triumphant. Father, the one who took our sin upon himself, we want to see him, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see him afresh today and go from this place encouraged and rejoicing and challenged and rebuked. Father, we long to see his name lifted up and glorified amongst us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some of the greatest statements that you will ever make in this life? I began the message two weeks ago with that statement, asking you, what great statements do you make that will absolutely change your life? For example, two words totaling uh, four or five letters, I will. That's a life-changing statement. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded uh, husband and so on, the wife and and whatnot? I will. That will change your entire life. It makes everything different. It's a life-changing statement. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And you say, yes. And the person says, then on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three letters, one word that changes everything for you. And you're now baptized as a believer, showing your faith and obedience to Christ. That's a life-changing statement. 
How often do we say one thing with our lives, our words, sorry, and something entirely different with our lives? How often do we discover, after we've made that great statement, that what it involves is so much more than we ever thought possible? I said, I do, I think, or I will, I can't remember what I said now, on December the 4th, 1993, and looking back now, 23 years later, it has made a radical change to my life. I see three young men, I see my wife, I see the, where we are, all these things. It's all been radically changed. I didn't know what I was saying back then. I didn't realize what it would involve. But I think for us, as we come this morning and we look at the scriptures and we want to see Christ, when we make the statement like Peter did, you are the Christ, I don't think he had very much idea at all of what he was truly saying. And the reality is, the point that I want to get across to us again this morning is the fact that the the words we use when we call ourselves Christians, it means so much more than we allow. There's so much more packed up in that statement. And I'm spending basically four, four weeks looking at one statement of Peter because there's so much in that. And there's so much that it puts on us. There's so much implication in the words, you are the Christ to us as believers in Jesus, that we need to look at it. We need to understand what it is. We need to understand what we mean when we say, he is the Christ and we are Christian. What does that mean? You've got the little note sheet in front of you. You can see there, there's four main points. Last time we looked at Jesus is the Christ, the anointed of God, the fact that he was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Today I want to look at the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed prophet of God. And then next week we'll look at Jesus is the Christ, the anointed high priest of God. And all that that means, that's a huge topic, and we'll jam it down into one session. And then on Christmas Day... You're going to be here on Christmas Day. We're going to look at the last and the greatest of all of them. Oh, I shouldn't say the greatest. They're all equally great. But one of the, the beautiful ones is that he is the anointed king. And, of course, we'll look at this one who has been born king of the Jews. He is the Christ, the anointed king of kings. We said that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. His anointing is what marks him as qualified to do all of his work. His work of speaking for God to us. That's the work of a prophet. His work of interceding between us and God. That's his work as the high priest. He goes before us. He goes on our behalf. He went on our behalf to the cross. And he goes up into heaven on our behalf. And he intercedes with the Father all through our days. He prays for us. That's his work on our behalf with God. And finally, his work of ruling and reigning over us as God who is King of Kings. He is a prophet of God. That required anointing in the Old Testament. He's the high priest of God. And that required a special anointing. I think I told you last time. They take a special mix of these gums and spices and resins and fluids. And it was beautifully fragrant and rich. And they would pour it on the head of the high priest. And that oil, that beautiful fragrant like rich perfume would flow down his head and his beard and on his clothes and would drip off onto the ground. And everywhere that Aaron walked, as he had been anointed as a high priest, this aroma would flow off of him. You could, see, you could smell him coming a mile away. It was so rich. Well, all of those works require the king and the prophet and the priest all require the anointing of God. And it's a picture, a sign, a display for us 
that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's the internal reality that the external oil poured over someone's head displays. And like I said, just like the, the oil gives off that beautiful fragrance everywhere he goes, so the Spirit of God filling that man ought to give off a tremendous fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. Amen? Now, I made a practical point last time regarding all of this. I want us to be sure that we understand the logic and how and why I made the application. This is what it is. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he further asks them, literally, but you. And in the Greek, it's very emphatic. But you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with a great statement, you are the Christ. And from Matthew 16, we know that the Father in heaven revealed that to Peter, and that was given to him from God. And my point to all of us is, who do you and who do I say that Jesus is? And on a deeper level, what do our lives say that we believe about Jesus Christ? And here's the logic. Our lips... And our life, our actions, our deeds, our attitudes, our words, our thoughts, all of that wrapped together are expressions of what we believe. The Bible says in 1 John 5 verse 1, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. That's a great statement. If we say that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are testifying that we are born of God, born of his Holy Spirit. Um, The Bible tells us in John chapter 3, we are born of his spirit. In Ephesians 1, we're sealed with his spirit. And just like Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, so we as Christians, little Christs, little anointed ones, are also to be filled with the spirit and led by the spirit everywhere we go and the things that we do and the things that we say. That's what's supposed to mark us out as Christians. It is not simply because you go to church or you carry a Bible or you don't drink, don't smoke, do all those other things that you're not supposed to do. That's not what should mark you out. Yes, the outflow of this, you might not drink and smoke and all those kind of things, but the reality is the filling and the influence of the Spirit of God in your life is what's supposed to mark you out as a follower of Jesus Christ, anointed with His Holy Spirit. It's exactly the same picture. So, moving on. If we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we're born of God. So in the same way that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you this morning again, who do you say that Jesus is? What does your life say that you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, I want to get on to the main point, number two. So you can see on your note sheet there, the top, there's four main points. And then there's four sort of, or three other points below that. So the the dark second point is the main point for today. If that completely confused you, I'll explain it later. Uh, He is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet of God. Remember that Jesus' anointing by the Holy Spirit marked him as qualified to save his people from their sin. Again, remember Jesus' question, Peter's words. We've been through that. You are the Christ. You are the anointed prophet of God. That's the depth of the meaning of what Peter is saying. Now, how do we know the prophets of God were men anointed by by God for their task and role? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 16, 22, and I think it's God speaking through one of the men. He says, do not touch my anointed ones, my prophets. 
Do not do my prophets any harm. So by using parallelism, he's showing us that his prophets were anointed once. Remember the story in the scriptures? Often the prophet would say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news and so on. So the prophet was one who had claimed to be filled with the spirit of God or the spirit of God resting on him in the Old Testament so that he could proclaim and announce God's words. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, this is Moses speaking in his last great sermon before all the people of God on the plain. I think it's outside Moab. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen. You shall listen to him. And in Deuteronomy 18, 18, God speaks through Moses again. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What did Jesus say? I only speak the things the Father gives me to speak. He's exactly fulfilling Moses' prophecy about himself all those years later. God promised another great prophet would come, and he came in the person of Jesus Christ. So this great prophet would be just like Moses. And just like Moses, Jesus delivered his people from slavery to sin. But not just slavery out of Egypt. That was difficult, for sure. But slavery to sin required something only Jesus could do. Only he could suffer and die on a cross, our substitute who went before us. And we'll look at that in much greater detail next week. But just like Moses, he delivered his people from their sin. Just like Moses... Jesus would mediate a new covenant, but not a covenant of obedience to the law. A new covenant marked by two distinct things that the Old Testament could never give the Old Testament Jew. Number one, forgiveness of sins. And beyond that, a clear conscience. I studied Hebrews last semester, and one of the things that just hit me like a ton of bricks was reading through Hebrews 8 and 9 and realizing that all the Old Testament law, it could not cleanse the conscience of the sinner. But when we're in Christ, when his blood is on us, when we claim his forgiveness, our conscience is cleansed. That peace you're talking about, it comes from a cleansed conscience. No longer is there a sense of guilt between us and God. Just like Moses, Jesus would offer to be destroyed for the people's sin. And you remember that scene up on the mountain? And Moses says, blot me out from your book and forgive them. And God doesn't do it because he knows he can't. But one day Jesus will come and he will go to a cross And he will literally be crushed under the weight of his father's wrath against me for my sin and against you for your sin. And just like Moses who offered himself to be destroyed for the people of sin, Jesus did. But in his case, he was actually crushed. And the Bible says that it pleased the father to bruise him. That's a statement that you should spend some time unpacking and thinking about. It pleased the father to bruise him. That's Isaiah 53. Just like Moses, Jesus declared the word of God with great authority. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus repeatedly says to them, You have heard it said, but I say to you. It's a great statement of his own prophetic authority to speak as God to the people. The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' authoritative giving of a new covenant way of life by faith in God. Jesus is the great prophet who Moses promised would come. He is the prophet of God, anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says 
In Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus comes back from the wilderness temptation. He makes his way back to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and he asks for the book and they give him a scroll of the book of Isaiah and he opens it up by rolling it back and forth to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And what's he say? He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. He's saying, I'm the anointed prophet of God. I'm the one that was promised all those years ago. I've come, I'm here, and I'm speaking for God. In Luke 4, 16 to 30, he went into that and he claimed that, that fulfillment of prophecy of Isaiah 61. Jesus is the anointed prophet who Moses promised would come. When Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that meaning is wrapped up in that word Christ, the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. It's all packed in there tightly. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are declaring that he is the anointed prophet of God. You see, I didn't know that. I'm so glad to tell you. When you claim to be a Christian, you're claiming to follow one who is the prophet of God, filled with the Spirit of God. He is God, yes. But he's filled with the Spirit of God to speak the words of God to the people of God. Now then, the anointed prophet of God in the Old Testament had three primary duties to perform. He was to teach them, he was to foretell the future, and thirdly, he was to judge them, their actions, and their works. And I want to unpack those three because they have some implication for us and how we live as Christians. I want to see how they play out in his life, and I want to see what they mean for us as we believe and declare Jesus to be the Christ. Firstly, the anointed prophet taught the people of God. He was charged with more than just foretelling the future. He didn't walk around just saying, you know, in days to come, the kings of the north will come down, the eagle will fly over, and all those great cryptic prophetic statements you read in the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and that. That wasn't just his job. His job was also to teach the people of God how they were to live in light of the prophecies he was giving them. Moses told the people of his own ministry in Deuteronomy 4 verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land at your entering to possess. The prophet of God was to teach the people the truth about God. In Isaiah 2 verse 3, the Bible says, Come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. I hadn't thought of this until just now, but here's a point to think about. You open the word of God and you read through it. You sit down in your study in your big comfy chair with an audio sermon. You listen through it. You sit in these rather uncomfortable chairs on Sunday morning and you listen to sermon after sermon after sermon and you hear the word of God proclaimed. Guess what? It isn't just to fill your ears and your heads and your minds with knowledge. It's to fill your life with the knowledge of the word of God that we may live and walk according to the truth that we hear. Let me ask you a question. This is completely off my sermon. That doesn't matter. Let me ask you a question. Look back a year ago. December 11th, a year ago. 
What were you like as a believer? What was your walk with the Lord like? How close were you walking with the Lord? How, how close was your fellowship with other believers? Got a mental idea? Now let me ask you another question. What's it like today? And here's the kicker. Is there any different? I look back at my life and, and realize how much God has taught me. And you know what the funny thing is? And I, and I think, you know how your, your, your teachers get so frustrated because they teach the same thing over and over and over again? Or parents with little kids, you teach the, your kids the same thing over and over and over and over again, and they never seem to get the lesson. <laughs> and Bridie's laughing because she knows exactly what we're talking about. How often does God get frustrated with us because he teaches us the same thing over and over and over and over again? And there are times... And in all honesty, I go before the Lord and there's a sin I need to confess and set right. And I almost say, Lord, I'm embarrassed to come back because it seems like I only just asked you for forgiveness for this same sin a week or so ago. And here we are and I've got another instance in the same thing all over again. Listen. He is the prophet of God. He speaks the words of God to us, not to just give us great theological brains. He does it so that we can be transformed into his image to live more like Jesus. The prophet of God was to teach the people of God how they were to live. Jesus came and taught the word of God to the people of God, his disciples and the crowds. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, it's Jesus' first pronouncement of his gospel message. He spoke, first of all, of the times and the imminent future. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said, it's right here amongst you. It's about to begin. And what's he do? He then turns around and says, now you have to live according to what you just heard. And number one, you must repent. Repent of sin. Believe the gospel, number two. And follow me, number three. He brings that basic message at the very beginning of the book of Mark. In Mark 1 and verse 21, he goes into the Capernaum synagogue and he teaches them. And the crowds are amazed. Look at this one. He teaches with authority and not as the scribes and the teachers. They're dry, boring lectures. In Mark 2.13, he teaches the people beside the sea. In Mark 4, verse 1, he began to teach again beside the sea. Mark 4, 2 through 9, he taught the crowds in parables. He used stories and illustrations from their life to explain the truths of God to him. In Mark 6, Jesus goes into the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, into the synagogue in Nazareth. And they won't hear a word of it. And they literally try and kill him. In Mark 8, he sits down and he teaches the disciples. We're going to look next week or in a few weeks from now about the, his death, his passion. He teaches the disciples about his death and his resurrection and, and so on. In Mark 9, 31, he taught them again about his death. In Mark 10, verse 1, Jesus again taught the crowds. In Mark 11, one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible. He goes into the temple with a whip of cords and he kicks over the tables and he drives out all the sheep and animal. He clears all the money changers out. And what's he do in this great big scene of chaos and people going everywhere? He began to teach the people. Why did he come, bro? He came to teach the word of God to the people of God. I must go other places and preach the word of God because that is why I have come. He came to speak the word of God to us. Mark 14 and 49. During his trial, Jesus reminded them of his teaching the people of God in the temple. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus taught the people about living the kingdom ethic here and now. How did the people of the Jews respond to his teaching? 
They were amazed in Mark 2, in Mark 12. They said to Jesus, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They got it. They never changed. They didn't do anything about it, but they got it. And we laugh and go, silly Jews, (laughs) how many of us are just the same? We get it. I'm not saying you, I mean us. Because how often do I read the Bible in my morning times with the Lord and I read the verse and it hits home and I get it, but no change. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, in these last days the Bible says, God has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The anointed prophet of God taught them the truth. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed prophet of God. Who do you say that Jesus is? He's the Christ, we all say. He's the anointed prophet of God. He's filled with the Spirit. He's bringing the word of God to us in truth, in spirit, in grace, in full measure. I love that about Jesus. As a guy who often finds his feet in his own mouth because he says the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong emphasis and upsets people quite frequently, I always marvel that Jesus could speak both truth graciously and grace with truth mixed in. He never compromised one for the other. Amazing. The words that came from Jesus' mouth and the way that he spoke. So firstly, Jesus is the anointed prophet teaching the people. Secondly, Jesus is the anointed prophet foretelling the future. Just like Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 when he tells all about the future, what's going to happen to them? You're going to betray God. You're going to deny God. You're going to go into idolatry. The nations will come. They'll drive you away. All that stuff. Israel's dispersion, Israel's apostasy, and the terrible calamities and judgments that God would bring against them because of their disobedience and idolatry. Jesus also spoke in terms of his people's apostasy, and he grieved over it. The Bible says in Matthew 24 that Jesus foretold the temple would be destroyed. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple totally. And for 1,946 years, by my best guess, the temple has stood in an unrestored ruins as a testimony to Jesus' predictions being kept. You look at the picture of of, uh, Jerusalem, you go there, all that rubble, Jesus' words were kept to the letter. Not one stone left upon another. The Wailing Wall, did you guys realize that's not the way it was built? When the guys came back in to, to do some work on it, this is hundreds of years ago, they got great big stones from the foundation and they, and they managed to get them piled up. And the reason why it's all you know, in and out and all over and the stones don't seem to fit properly, when this temple was built, it was a thing of amazing beauty and craftsmanship and workmanship. But that Wailing Wall, which is just pieces of rubble stone piled up, It wasn't the way it was built. Every single stone, like Jesus said, was pulled down and torn apart. The Roman soldiers, in a gold frenzy, tore the stones of the temple apart because as the fire was burning, it melted all the gold and it ran down in between all the stones and they dug every stone apart to get all the gold out. Makes sense, doesn't it? But Jesus' words were kept exactly the way he said. In Mark 8, 31, 9, 12, 9, 31, and Mark 10, 33, and 34, and Mark 14, 21, Jesus foretold his own death and suffering. In the same passages, he also predicted his rising again from the dead. Some men have some idea about when and how they might die. Right? But how many of us can predict to the day? Our resurrection. 
And I think the great gospel preaching of the New Testament emphasized more of the resurrection of Christ because it proved so powerfully who he was and what he was saying was so true. In Luke 24, 48 to 49, Jesus foretold that we would receive the power of the Holy Spirit from on high. In Acts 2, Pentecost happened. And believers everywhere since then have received the Holy Spirit as a sealing, branding mark that we are disciples, little Christs. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus foretold to the disciples, you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess what? We're in Australia. I have not a global check, but I don't know if you can get much further away from Jerusalem than Australia. And here we are. We're preaching the gospel in Australia. Jesus' words were kept. It hasn't been completely fulfilled because there are still thousands of people, groups, who have never heard the gospel. But Jesus' words were kept. He foretold the future in Mark 14, 62. Jesus foretold his coming again in power and great glory. And it will happen. You say, how do you know that? Turn on the TV and look at a picture of Jerusalem. I see every stone pulled down. And I know it happened. Jesus' words were kept. I hear the stories. I believe in my heart, with all my heart, that Jesus rose again the third day. His words were kept. This is a little side point. For those of you who are mathematicians and kind of like these sort of things, statistics, if you took every prediction about Jesus and put the likelihood of one person perfectly keeping every prediction that he has kept up until this point, so take out anything that's future yet, the likelihood is one, the big long line underneath it, and ten with 40 zeros after it. One chance out of all that. It's a number so high, they don't have a name for it. It's just one time, over ten to the power of 40. If you're an engineer or a mathematician, you know how big that is. It's huge. Only one. And Jesus' words were kept. He foretold his coming again in power and great glory. It could happen today. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen a hundred years from now. It will happen. That's the point. Here's this. How do you say that Jesus is? He is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet of God. He taught the people. He foretold the events of his death, his resurrection, and our future. And according to 1 John 5 verse 1, to say it again, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God. If you say and believe that Jesus is the Christ, speaking the words of God, foretelling the future, here's the point. Are you, am I, listening to what he said? Am I living in light of the certainty of those predictions? If we believe that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, are we busy doing what he commanded us to do today? If we believe he's going to finish the work in us, are we striving in cooperation with the Spirit of God to live in conformity to his will? Listen, he's given us every single thing we need to work with him that he might finish his work in us. He's given us his own words recorded in scripture. He's given us the whole counsel of God, the Bible. He's given us the promises. He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's given us the comfort of other believers who can help us and pray for us and rebuke us and encourage us and so on. So let me ask you again. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, some say he's John the Baptist and Elijah, one of the prophets. You know why the people were so quick to do that? Because if they bring him down, denigrate him down, 
to nothing more than one of the prophets and Elijah, John the Baptist. He's dead. He's gone. He's not our problem anymore. Push him out of the way. But if he is who he claims he is, who he has proved over and over again that he is, he is the anointed prophet of God. He taught us and he foretold the future. And thirdly, he was to judge the people regarding their obedience to the law of God. Very, very briefly. Just as Moses judged Israel, so also Christ fulfills the same function. The Bible describes in Exodus 18, Moses judging the people of God from morning till night. Moses judged the people of God for 40 years. Later with Joshua and the judges, God raised up for the people of Israel judges who would lead and deliver and rule in judgment over them. Jesus is also the anointed prophet of God who will judge He will judge not only his own people, but also all the nations of the earth in totality of history. I can't imagine that day. I started thinking of the day, you know, like the plain of Megiddo. Take all the nations of the world and all their history, every single person that was born, raised up from the dead, all standing in front of him. It would be quadrillions. I don't know if there's even a number high enough, but every single one there. And Jesus, in perfect omniscience, will walk through that and he will separate sheep. Goat, sheep, goat. That is judgment. He is making a discerning cut. And for the first time in all of biblical salvation history, the people of God will no longer be a mixed bag of believer and unbeliever. Now they will be separated into believers on one side and unbelievers on the other side. And the unbelievers will be cast into outer darkness and God will judge his people. The Bible says in John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. In John 5.27, the Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In Acts 10.42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Nobody escapes. Just a little side note. You've been wronged in this world? We all have, right? We've been ripped off by somebody somewhere. And sometimes you feel that frustration rise up. Does God not care that I just got ripped off? Yes. From the smallest event to the greatest injustice in all of human history, God cares. And a day to come, the judge of all the earth will decisively deal with every problem and every wrong will be put right. And God will bring judgment. He came willing to suffer the wrath of God, God's anger against us for our sin. That we might not have to suffer the wrath of God in the day to come. But God is going to deal. He is going to judge. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Bible says that he will judge all the living and the dead at his appearing and his coming again. In Matthew 25, 31 and 32, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a sheep, sorry, as the shepherd separates sheep and goats. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, it tells us that Jesus will judge all the believers as to their works done in the body. Does that mean we're going to lose our salvation? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that we're going to be awarded crowns for the works that we have done. And God will know all the works and he will judge them rightly. So Paul says, so my desire 
is to live pleasing to the Lord all my days because I know I will stand before the judgment throne of God and he will know and judge me the things done in the body, whether good or bad. That's a terrible quotation. Go read it for yourself. It's 2 Corinthians 5.9. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Christ is the anointed prophet of God. As a prophet, he teaches his people. As a prophet, he foretells the future. And as a prophet, he will judge the nations and his own people. So pack it all up, to put it all together and bring the point out of it. If we say and believe that he is the Christ, we are claiming to be born again, born of God, born of the Holy Spirit. If we say and believe that he is the Christ, we are acknowledging that he is the anointed prophet of God. To believe that demands we live in light of it. Uh, my brother, uh, Wes, some of you may remember back when we first started Casey Bible Church, uh, he got 347 volts at about 600 amps, went from one hand all the way through his body out the other hand. He was hanging on to two wires in his job. Now, my brother is not stupid, really. Really, he's not. And, and he knows that if he had seen two wires and gone, that one's live and that one's grounded, that one's got 347, that's touching the earth, I'll grab them both. He knew exactly what that would do. He didn't do it on purpose. And so knowing that, and believing what the power in the one and the grounding in the other could do to his physical body, he would never deliberately choose to do that. And so his belief and understanding and knowledge of what could happen drove the actions of avoiding it. Unfortunately, someone tur- the power was supposed to be off and someone turned on without telling him, and when he grabbed the two wires, he grabbed one live and one ground, and of course he was electrocuted. He didn't die, but it did a terrible amount of damage to his body. What we believe drives what we do. You want to know what someone really believes? Turn off the volume and watch. It isn't so much what comes out of here. I mean, this is part of it. But what we do, that will tell you what someone truly believes. My belief drives my behavior. You say, we believe. That Jesus is the Christ. We believe he is the anointed prophet of God. We see the scriptures and we nod in agreement. But let me ask you, do you listen to his teaching? He came and the first words coming out of his mouth were, the, king, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And the question I've got to put before all of us and myself first and foremost and all of you to follow is, are you and am I actively repenting of sin? It is not. A once-only moment in time that you never repeat. You ongoing throughout all of your Christian life. You're going to live in an ongoing repentance. Whenever you see sin come up in your life, are you actively trying and striving to turn away from it? And it's not easy. In the power of the Spirit of God, it is possible. Because He promised it is. Do we believe the gospel? We by faith accepting what Jesus said. Are we living by faith in God all day, every day? He said, follow me. He didn't mean follow me when it's convenient. He didn't mean follow me when it's fun. He didn't mean just follow me when the crowds are all rejoicing and singing Hosanna, Hosanna, as Joe was reminding us earlier. He meant follow me all the way into Jerusalem, all the way through Jerusalem, and out the other side and up on a hill called Calvary, and there to let his hands be nailed to a cross. 
Right after he makes all this statement about who do you say that I am, immediately he begins to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise again. Always, when that connection of who he is, he always ties it right away to the cross. Because following Jesus is so much more than just saying, yep, I'm a Christian. I don't do a few things, I do a few others. It means an absolute and total and radical commitment to Christ. I'm calling you to it, and I'm calling myself to it as much, if not more, for good reason. But listen, he said, repent, believe, follow me. Are we willing to step out and go where he goes and walk where he walked and suffer as he suffered? You talked about imitating Paul as he imitated Christ. Paul's greatest imitation happened on the Apian way outside of Rome in 65, 66 AD when they put a sword around his neck and took his head off. He suffered and died. Peter was willing to follow Christ all the way to being crucified upside down. You say, that was 2,000 years ago. I don't do that anymore. Heads up, folks. Those days have come back. In the Middle East, they're crucifying Christians and they're killing Christians. And the day that we live in, I believe we'll see persecution on this country, on this land. And one day, the call to follow Christ will not just be to go to church on Sunday and go to youth group and listen to Christian music. It'll be so much more. Do we live in light of the predictions that he made? He said he will finish the work he began in us. He said he would work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He said he would give his Holy Spirit to those who asked him. He said he would return in power and glory to judge the nations. Are we living in full expectation of those promises being kept? Why did I get you to read your Bible? Why did I push you so hard to read your Bible and pray lots? Because when we're doing those things, we are giving the Holy Spirit the tools and the ammunition to change us from the inside out. As we put the word of God into us, he can take it and bring it and work it out through our hands and feet and mouth and eyes and nose. He can bring it out of us. But we are living saying, I believe he's going to finish that work in me. So I'm going to equip him with the tools by reading the word of God, by turning away from sin, by spending time in prayer. Just a little personal note. Um, Last couple of... Days and weeks, I guess it's been now. I can't remember how long. I've been enjoying some tremendous times in prayer. Now, this is a little bit off the topic, but it doesn't matter. If you have a little notebook at home, I really, really strongly encourage you, take a notebook, put a margin down, write a date, and when you come across things that you know you need to pray for on a regular basis, write it out. Father in heaven, write it out and date it. Go back through and read those things on a regular basis. I've seen the Lord begin to answer some amazing prayers in my life. And those prayer times have turned to some of the most amazing times of worship and tears. And if I'm at the office by myself and nobody can hear me, I walk up and down the hallway praying out loud. And I can't encourage you enough to do the same kind of thing. Why? Because the Spirit of God uses those times when we're in fellowship with Him to change us. That's what it means to follow Him, to be so closely tied behind Him, to walk so close behind Him that we're almost kicking the back of His heels because we're following so closely. We're remembering the warnings that He made about His return, the great judgment of all the nations. Listen, who do you say? Jesus is. 
What does your life say? If we switched off the volume and followed you around for a month, oh, followed you around for a day, just one day, what would be the conclusion at the end of the day that you believe? You notice I didn't volunteer for you to do it to me. But seriously, in all seriousness, what does your life show that you believe about Jesus Christ? The lights go off at night and it's just you and the Lord. What's going on there? I plead with you as you sit here this morning as we finish up and we sing another song. We think about Peter's answer. You are the Christ. You can say that with your mouth and not believe in your heart and nothing has changed. But if you believe with your mouth, believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, Romans 10 and 9, I believe it is, then you are saved. You are born of God, born of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the reality of that sealing and feeling is it has to change us from the inside out. And the things that we do, whether we open our mouth or not, will declare to everybody around us different, anointed, belonging to Christ. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Then the guys are going to come and lead us in one more song. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning for Jesus. And Father, to have sat on the road and looked at him as he asked the question, Who do you say that I am? Father, how, how would we have answered? Father, we can stand here this morning and we can say, We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that you, Lord, are our Savior and our Lord, our King, But Father, we also want to say we believe that you are the anointed prophet of God. And Father, as a church, I pray that you would instill in us, drive into our hearts, the conviction that we need to listen to the words of Jesus. Father, we need to pay very, very close attention to the things he promised. Great promises and predictions that he made. And Father, we give thanks for the greatest promise of all, that he is coming again very soon. Father, we pray that even before this service is over, that he would return. And we would see him face to face. Oh, Father, what it will be to see Jesus. To see the scars in his hands and across his back. Father, to look long into the eyes of the Savior who loved us even to the point of death. To know what love really is. Father, we long to see him. But Father, we also long to be like him. To live up to the fact that we claim to be Christian. And so, Father, I plead with you that you would do a work in our lives. Father, you would bring conviction of sin. Father, there are some in this room that are refraining in some form of fellowship. Father, I plead with you for all of us that you would bring healing and reconciliation and restoration. 
Father, I pray that this little church would be powerfully used by you to preach the gospel, not just on Sunday morning from behind a pulpit, but through the lives and the words of every single one who fellowships with us. That our lives and our words would declare that he is the Christ. He is the one who came and spoke. Father, we thank you that in times past you spoke through the prophets, but in the last days you gave us your full and final revelation of yourself through the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is the Christ. He is the high priest of God. Father, we thank you that even when we don't know how to pray, we can't find the words, and our hearts are breaking before you. Father, we thank you that he prays for us. Father, we give you thanks also that he is the king. He was born king. He died a king. He rose a king triumphant. And Father, we give you thanks that he is seated on high, ruling and reigning over all of his creation, over all his people. And Father, we long to see him return, establish his throne on this earth, and rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. Father, we long for the way, the day that faith will give way to sight and we will see him. Father, I pray that you would take the words of God and impress them deeply upon all of our hearts and our lives. That we would live lives that are pleasing to you. Like Paul said. Father, we ask you these things and we seek your blessing and we plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen.